0: episode, we open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth has followed the mother of her late husband, Naomi, into Israel. As a Moabite woman, one could easily question Ruth's loyalty, but she is faithful not only to Naomi, but to Yahweh, the one true God. In this chapter, we see Ruth gleaning grain from the crops left over to feed the poor. She gleans in the field of Boaz, who takes an interest in her. In her encounter with Boaz, who would become for her a kinsman redeemer would change everything. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Monday, January twenty third. Thank you for starting your week with us. You're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their publishing and translating work at lhfmissions.org. As we go into Ruth chapter two, please join me in welcoming back to the show, the Reverend James Stefanik, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marshall, Minnesota. Good morning, Pastor Stefanik. How are you doing?
1: Hey, good morning. I am doing well, and it's great to be with you again.
0: Oh, it's great to be with you too. Now, we're pretty close to each other. We couldn't meet in person today. I'm kind of sad about that, but I'm happy to have you on the show, even, even over the phone, or actually we're over the internet together. How have things been going at your parish? I assume that things have slowed down a little bit after Christmas, but Lent is already quickly coming.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, and they things are going well. We uh, we had a great Christmas. I was uh, reminded During this Christmas tide that I missed most of Christmas last year with my congregation, because we had, I think I had six people in my household that tested for COVID on Christmas Eve morn. So I didn't get to, to participate live in any of the, the festivities last year, but we got to be part of it again, which was great. And certainly looking forward to the, the season of, of Lent, but right now We have this great joy of, as you mentioned, Epiphany Tide as we take
0: heart and and solace in the manifestation of our Lord's glory. Yeah, you know, Epiphany is such an underrepresented and under observed or celebrated, however you want to say it, season, I believe, you know, in our church body or really in Christianity on this side of the globe in general, you know, there's so many different wonderful festivals and festivities that they do over in Europe and other places. Not all of them super religious, let's be <laughs> honest, as some of it kind of ends up like Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day. But at least Epiphany is still observed. It's so, like I said, under observed here. And but it is it represents such an amazing uh, display of Christ's divinity. And we, we certainly talk about it in worship. But I just don't think it's in the mainstream as much as, say, Christmas and Easter.
1: Right. Yeah. We had, a, we had an Epiphany, ser- and we do this every year. We have a, a service on Epiphany, regardless of, of when it falls. And I, I tried to, to say, hey, let's have a potluck this year beforehand and coax a, hopefully a couple more people to come to the Epiphany Divine Service. But as we were, as I was preparing for the, the sermon, I was reminded that in Spain, Epiphany is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. and They, they. In fact, they don't. The kids don't get presents from from Santa Claus, but the kids in Spain get presents from the Three Kings that come. And so, Three Kings Cake is a popular thing to to have over in Spain, and and they open up their presents and kind of get this second Christmas. But it's it's good for us to remember that Epiphany is Christmas for us too. It's a Gentile Christmas, as I, I I like to say. And it's one of the one of the five top feast days in the liturgical calendar, so we would do well to pay attention to it and give it its right import.
0: Yes, and one of the oldest too. right, right, second only to Easter. right yeah, so I, and I do know one more fact about epiphany before we moved on is that the uh, the orthodox church, in some places, I think what they do is they they throw like a cross in the water and then like all the young men have to jump in and get the cross and whoever pulls it out has, you know, some sort of blessings for that year. Uh, I'm Not a hundred percent sure of all the specifics, but I don't think here in Minnesota, we're going to be wanting to jump into <laughs> any water, grabbing any crosses out.
1: Well, you, you know, the Russians, I, I read this, that they have the custom on, on Epiphany. This would be like the Russian Orthodox Church to do just that, to jump into the water. and so maybe maybe there we can find some kind of a, a kinship and do some polar diving or something like
0: that during the month of January. That is true. There are a lot of sort of uh, freezing for a reason and that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> charities going on during this time, but maybe right. that's really good. Well, I tell you what, we're going to be in the book of Ruth today. We just started it on Friday of last week, and we're actually going to finish it up this week. So it's a very short book. Uh, and, but it's, it's, it's notable, you know, not just notable because it's one of the two books that are named for women in the Bible. It's notable because, of course, what it says about our God. Before we get into the actual text, though, I'd like to invite you to begin us with prayer.
1: Yes, absolutely. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, you are the Lord of heaven and earth and the orchestrator of all things. As we study your word this day, open our hearts and minds, that through it we may be pointed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever. Amen.
0: Amen. Before I read chapter 2 or some of the text from chapter 2, is there anything you'd like to say to set the stage for those who are listening? Maybe catch them up with what has already happened in chapter 1.
1: Yeah, just as a, a reminder here for those who are listening. So in Ruth chapter one, we're told right away in verse one that this took place in the days when the judges ruled. Hence, why in our English Bibles the book of Ruth follows the book of Judges. I think it's it's helpful for us to remember a little bit about the book of Judges. Uh, specific, excuse me, specifically this that that things just get worse and worse as the book of Judges goes along. So Joshua dies. And when Joshua died, he was talking to the, the people, much like Moses did. He, he called them to remember all that the Lord had spoken to them, to remember the rules and the commandments. And then we get this horrible verse in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. There arose a generation that did not know Yahweh. They did not know the Lord. With the Judges, then, there's this cycle. We could even call it the ABCD cycle of the book of Judges that's followed. The people fall into apostasy, that is, idolatry. They, they reject Yahweh as Lord. They're battered, that is, some foreign enemy is sent in by God to wallop them a little bit and hopefully get their, their minds in the right place. The the people cry out, that's the sea, they cry out for deliverance. And the Lord brings that deliverance in the form of a judge. The judges start off pretty good, but as you as you go through the book of Judges, they just kind of get worse and and worse. So when we get to to Ruth, at some point this happened in, in the time of the judges, we find that there's a famine in the land. And This man of Bethlehem, Elimelech, moves his family to Moab. Now, Elimelech had a wife, Naomi, and he has two sons with her, Malon and and Kilian. And we know that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. While in Moab, Elimelech died and her two sons end up dying too. Before they died, they took two Moabite wives: one Orpa, the other Ruth. Ruth, when Naomi is talking about going back to the, the land where she came from, Ruth is, does, has this beautiful confession, where she says to Naomi that my God will be, or your God will be my God, and where you die, I will die. And so Ruth stays devoted to her mother-in-law, even though there's no a real rhyme or reason for her to do so. Now that devotion, maybe just one final word on that before we, we get into our text, that devotion is not strictly devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. That, that devotion of Ruth is a devotion to the Lord himself. In fact, I would like to suggest that Ruth's response to Naomi is primarily about her faithfulness to Yahweh. Because Orpah, and we we know this, Orpah, she goes, she kisses her mother-in-law and then she goes back to the land of Moab, presumably to follow the gods that she had previously followed. But, But Ruth, on the other hand, this faithful woman, make sure that she doesn't go astray again, but she confesses the Lord to be God. So that's a little bit of our background. Now they have come back to Bethlehem and uh, Ruth's about to do some gleaning.
0: (laughs) That's right. Well, why don't we read the first 13 verses that gets us a little more than halfway through our text and, uh, and then we'll just pick it up from there and take it apart. Here we go. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Okay, actually, a lot of stuff going on here. And and as you mentioned earlier, it's important to note that, you know, things aren't peaceful in the kingdom right now during the time of the judges. And so, you know, she's going to glean, which I'm sure you'll bring out has to do with the fact that God has you know commanded the people to leave something for the poor and widows and orphans a widow would be her case made use of this but then Boaz looks like you know he's trying to protect her from you know maybe getting into company that would be harmful to her starting at the beginning take us through this so Naomi's husband's let's just say relative that's Boaz and and that probably will come into play too later what are we looking at here
1: right so yeah, we can start with talking a little bit about the gleanings and and what's going on there. Back in Leviticus chapter nineteen, in a spot where the Lord tells the people to love the neighbor as the as as yourself, <laughs> uh, we hear these words in verse nine: When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after. Your harvest. But this is going to be left for whom? As you mentioned, this is going to be for the poor and for the sojourner. We can think of gleanings then basically as leftovers. We, we had, for lunch today, we had leftovers. And I don't know if you have leftover day in your house ever, Pastor Boo, <laughs> but when we have leftover day, we just, we established the rule that it's first come, first served. Whoever right. gets to the kitchen first gets to have their, their pick. Uh, and so some, some take that to heart and they sprint off to the, the kitchen to try and get the best leftover. And the, the, the others, they're just stuck with, what, with whatever remains after that.
0: Well, I have uh, to admit, Pastor Stefanik, that the same rule applies in my house. And I have often hidden leftovers so that I would be the one to get them. So... <laughs> Yes, I definitely know. That's great.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> the, we have Ruth doing what is in accord with the, the law of the Lord and, and finding her place amongst this people that, that to her is foreign. But what's incredible about this is Ruth, for what she has done for her faithfulness, To her mother-in-law, she's made quite the name for herself. Her reputation precedes her, we could say, and in the best way possible. So much so that the man Boaz, Boaz means something like a mighty man of valor, notices and is well aware of her story. I think at this point, it would be good to, to just say something about the providence of God. That is to say that this whole event did not happen by accident. And not just this event that we read, but, but in what is to come. Ruth and Boaz meeting together was something that was orchestrated by the Lord. And, and that's kind of one of the, the things that we need to keep in, in mind, that the Lord is always, in some sense, in the background putting all of the pieces together, even if in the moment, in the given moment, an individual might not see how it is or why it is that God is acting in in the way that he is. In order to think a little bit more fully about the providence of God and, and how, as I mentioned in the opening prayer, the Lord is the Lord of history, let's consider Joseph for just a second. If you remember at the end of the life of Joseph, he his brothers come to him after Father Jacob has died, and they they come up with this story and that before he died, Jacob told them uh, to, that, that assured the brothers to that Joseph would not bring them harm, right? So the the brothers go to Joseph and they say, "Our father told us that you wouldn't do anything bad to us." In essence, now, because this, this could be the perfect time for Joseph to strike, for Joseph to, to act in vengeance toward his brothers who wanted to kill him, but they eventually just sold him into slavery and left him for dead. And Joseph responds with, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So if you're looking at like the life of Joseph, you. At least as, as things are unfolding for Joseph himself, how do you make sense of all that takes place? So Joseph is thrown into the pit or the cistern and, and he's sold off into slavery, right? He goes to Egypt and while he's there, he raises to prominence in the house of Potiphar. Joseph is a good man. Potiphar thinks highly of him and he kind of becomes second, second in charge right next to Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife has the hearts for Joseph and won't leave him alone. Joseph is right. faithful. He does the right thing. When Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him, he runs away. He flees from temptation, which is exactly what the Lord tells us to do when it comes to temptation, to run away from it. But Potiphar's wife is able to to rip a part of his garment off and and use that as blackmail. She she says, This man, Joseph, he he tried to sleep with me. I'm innocent. So Joseph, for being faithful, gets thrown into prison. Well, my goodness, how do you make sense of that? Then while he's in prison, you got the, 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 the baker, right? And then the, the cupbearer. And they have dreams. And while they have this dream, they're, they're wondering what, what, what to, to do with it. Joseph is able to interpret it. And he he interprets the dream of the of each one. And it ends up being the the case that the it's the baker, right? The baker ends up having a not so favorable interpretation. So the the baker, he's just kind of forgotten, but the cupbearer, he's told that he'll be restored to his position. And Joseph's only request is please please remember me when, when you get out of this place so that I might be able to get out of this place too. And he's forgotten. Well, And he remains in prison. That is, Joseph remains in prison for a while longer until you get to the, the time when Pharaoh has a dream and no one can interpret it. And then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And Joseph ends up becoming second in command in all of Egypt. He's his life is orchestrated by God so that he might save his own family and, and, and the children of Israel. And this is also going to be the mechanism by which the Lord will bring his people into Egypt so that he can accomplish that great act of salvation in the Old Testament, the Exodus. All along Joseph's life, all along in, in Ruth's life, the Lord is putting the wheels into motion. And while they're in the midst of it, they can't necessarily see what the Lord is doing or why he is doing it. But at least in the case of Joseph, and we can say this too about the end of the book of Ruth too, as they look back on their lives, they can see that God himself is the one who has, who has orchestrated the events of their life and has done so in in these cases and done so in a favorable way to them. So that's a a little bigger picture thing that I wanted to touch on regarding this, the passage that you read thus far.
0: Right. Yeah, it really shows us God working in the background because a lot of people ask, you know, really what, what does the book of Ruth contribute to God's plan for our salvation? Now that comes pretty clear. Once we get to the (laughs) end in the genealogy, don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying, you know, people say, you know, what's the overall message? It just seems to be about some girl who follows her ex-mother-in-law and, and she has nowhere else to go and she, you know, gets with this guy, Boaz. But but that's such a cynical look, right? Because we see in the background God working for these people, but it, it points forward, of course, to how he works for us through Christ, even Boaz being a type of Christ. So there's so much to get from it. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And we'll...
1: Uh... At the end, when we get to the end of this chapter, we'll talk more about how it is that Boaz ends as a type of Christ in relation to his role as a kinsman redeemer. Hopefully I don't spoil too much for your future guests.
0: But <laughs> no. Uh, it's always it's <laughs> always good, worth repeating. So, you know, he, he tells her not to go into other fields, but you know, don't leave this one. Stick close to my young women. Some of the language here indicates that not only is Boaz probably uh, an older man, probably among the wealthier class or you know, definitely in terms of relation to Ruth. But she might be a little on the younger side, especially since she's married and widowed, unfortunately. But then also that he kind of clumps her in with his young ladies, the servants who are serving him in various ways. But he he's looking he's setting it up to protect her toward the end. We'll see that he uh, definitely is protecting her. But she says, you know, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? This Moabite situation, the fact that she's up from Moab uh, is significant because, you know, the Moabites were not very friendly to the Israelites as they moved toward the, through the wilderness and they were punished because of that by God. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. So the, the Moabites were descendants of that incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. And they're, they're part of the long line of, of ites, you could say, that we, we get in the scriptures. So you have like the, oh, the, the Jebusites, right? And, and the, the Ammonites and so on and so forth, the Perizzites. The, the, so the, the Moabites are not the greatest of people. There's certainly a a, a people that we know followed false gods. Um, What's prominent, though, about Ruth is that she has stepped away from that life. She's she's put that life aside. When she proclaims her fidelity to Naomi, again, that's a fidelity to the Lord. And so, uh, what Boaz knows of Ruth is that though she might be a Moabite, this, this woman is a believer in the one true God. This, this woman desires to be a part of the people of Israel, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and receive all of the blessings that God himself has to give for his people so we can we we see the the great we see how it is that ruths f- fidelity to the lord brings with it in this case an earthly reward she is recognized by another faithful man for what she has done
0: and we even see the name of yahweh on the lips of this man as he's coming and referring you know talking to his servants and undoubtedly you know this is indicative of his faithfulness and and what will be happening next so yeah i think there's a lot to dig in here and we'll read some more when we get back from our break but for now we're going to take our break folks don't go anywhere when we return pastor stefanik and i will continue looking at chapter two of the book of ruth don't go anywhere we'll see you on the other side Back to thy strong word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend James Stefanik, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marshall, Minnesota. Now, before we jump back into the text, I want to remind you, as always, that you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com with your questions or comments, or you can find me on Facebook. I'm happy to answer your questions or receive your comments on or off the air. Now, Pastor Stefanik, before the break, we were just finishing up with well, verses one through thirteen. What else you want to cover before we move on to the second half of our text?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to, for a moment, go back to verse four and this greeting that Boaz has with the reapers. So Boaz comes to the reapers and says, "The Lord be with you," and they answered, "The Lord bless you." Now, those words should be rather familiar to us because we see them so often within the the divine service and the one comment that i want to make about them is that when we when we say these things it's not it's not a wish it's not a hope in an earthly sense like uh, like i hope it's going to get warm sometime soon in southwest minnesota instead it's a it's really a promise it's a declaration when when a blessing is given in the name of the Lord, that which is stated is passed on to the person who is receiving the blessing. For example, when, when we hear the words of the Aaronic benediction at the end of the divine service, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is not the pastor saying, well, I really hope that this is happening or taking place for you. Instead, the, the pastor is declaring to the people what is going on, that is, that the Lord is gracious to you, that the Lord is making his face to shine upon you and lifting up his countenance upon you. The Lord right now is giving you his peace. He's sending you off in that peace that he has freely bestowed upon you throughout the service. So it's good for us to hear those words as for what they are, that is really a proclamation, a declaration of the Lord's word spoken unto the other.
0: And along those same lines, I've always understood it being important to say the Lord bless you and keep you, as opposed to what some people have gotten in the habit of doing is saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you. I think the intentionality is the same, but the may the Lord bless you and keep you is almost kind of like that hope or wish, or I, I hope he does, or you know, maybe he will. That's why in our liturgy, it actually says, the Lord bless you and keep you. It doesn't begin with may though.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. The way that may is understood in English is, is, I hope this is the case. So yeah, we don't don't want to add to it because the Lord himself didn't add that word when he gave it to Aaron in Numbers chapter 6.
0: Well, let's move on to the second half of our text today, which is, you know, an interesting text. It continues the story, but we're we're a little later in the day. This is starting with verse 14 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 23. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh whose kindness has not been forsaken. Has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter in law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived. With her mother in law. Well, there we go. So he's being kind to her at mealtime. There's uh, some wine vinegar involved. That's significant. And then he, of course, you know, makes it such that she takes home a huge haul. He definitely fancies her. But as you also said, he's operating according to God's will, right? God is behind the scenes making this happen for a reason. Lead us through this, brother.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, Boaz, we're we see that he he definitely takes a special interest in Ruth and and i i think we would be safe to say that there might be a little bit of wooing that's going on here he he wants her protected right and so he, but in in that protection what he shows is that he's he's well aware of the levitical law to provide for the poor and the sojourner but he's seeking to exceed it. And, and maybe for a moment, we can just say a little bit about what love looks like then. Because that the, the command to glean for the, the sojourner and the, the, the poor, uh, the, the provision that's made for them in Leviticus 19, I said this earlier, comes within a section where the, the Lord is talking to his people, teaching them to love your neighbor as yourself. The thing about love that we need to realize is that biblical love is constantly calling forth more from us. When we are evaluating ourselves according to the law, according to the Ten Commandments, and asking, "Are we? am I loving God? Am I loving my neighbor? We, we never get to stop loving. Love is this action word, right? It's this this devotion to another. And, and there's not really a point where we can never check the box that says, Hey, look, I've, I've loved this person perfectly. Because as soon as we, maybe in one instance, have done what we are supposed to do, the next instance is right before us again, another opportunity to, to love our neighbor. So, Boaz seriously takes into his mind and into his heart the law to love and uh likely because he there's some interest in Ruth he he goes above and beyond what God himself had commanded
0: but even as you said even if there is some romantic interest this speaks also to the understanding of biblical love among those who might have a romantic interest in one another, and that is that true biblical love, whether it be between husband and wives or those who are betrothed to one another, is not just these warm and fuzzy feelings, which are great and they're a gift of God, but they're also chemically produced in your brain, but biblical love is is very much an action, a verb, putting others before you, that sort of thing. Well, frankly, what we see in Christ, what he does for the church, which is the whole point. But with that said, you know, and I, and I think we all as pastors have these conversations with those who are in premarital counseling with us. But yeah, it's about living for the other person, doing things for them. So, you know, it's not that he's trying to bribe her love. It's just that he, he it seemingly has an attraction for her. At the same time, he's following God's law. And then he shows her his affection by treating her special, which is you know the best advice we can give to any couple, too.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I I've said to a few couples in our congregation, those who have been married for fifty or, or more years, especially uh, how I've expressed to them how thankful I am for for their example, and that they are through their faithfulness to one another for all those years, they teach me. Ooh, i'm I'm in my fourteenth year of marriage now but they teach me what it looks like to love because the the amount of of trials and tribulations and sorrows and joys that they've that they've shared the the times where where they've had to care for the other person when the other the spouse is recovering from surgery or or when they've been sick when there's been struggles with despair or or depression or when there's been family difficulties they've they've survived through all of that and 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 they have they have done that i mean by by the grace of god of course but, but through all of that what they've done is they've they've learned what it means to love and i think this is what this is what you're getting at too we talk if we talk to those who are we'll say young and in love, there's this romanticized version of love that we have in our society. And Disney is much to blame <laughs> for that kind yeah. of understanding of romantic love, where it's, it's warm and fuzzy, it's butterflies in the heart. And, and that kind of thing uh, can be present, and, and it's not to be poo-pooed or just dismissed. One certainly needs to be cautious so that instead of thinking with hormones, we, we think according to God's word when those feelings come. Those feelings are very powerful, we understand. Uh, but but with this romantic view of love, we think I'm I'm I've fallen in love, and I know that because I feel like I love the other person. The, the problem is that that feelings are kind of like a roller coaster they're not this steady thing they go up and they go down and and life circumstances change and that same kind of emotional attachment that you may have had to someone is inev- inevitably going to fade away but to those who seriously the lord's word when it comes to marriage when when they understand what what a blessed institution it is they will they will grow in love for one another throughout their life as they sacrificially give themselves for the sake of the other and think not of themselves. It's, it, we, we think that maybe this is a way to just kind of put a capstone on this. We think that love is something that in our society that you fall into and that if all goes well, you stay in it and it's happily ever after. Instead of thinking that love is something that needs to be learned throughout a life together, throughout Mm -hmm. a life shared. And if we think about it in those terms, then something like we, something we see frequently in the Bible, arranged marriage (laughs) is not all that strange. It's actually, it's actually perfectly in accord with the Lord's for love, that this is something that we are going to come into together. We are going to be devoted to one another. And in this relationship, in this mutual companionship, we will discover what it means to love. And there's a great richness
0: to that. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that people certainly should love. I'm sorry, certainly should learn because love is something that's learned and you grow in. It's a great message. And we see here in our text, you know, Boaz is demonstrating his also ability to take care of Ruth. And I think it's interesting. I think some of the wooing happens here at mealtime at the very beginning of our new section. Come here and, you know, eat some bread and dip your morsel in this wine. Interestingly enough, this is a wine vinegar. A lot of the text will actually just translate it wine vinegar. The King James Version removes the word wine and uses vinegar. Vinegar. But regardless, this is the same concoction that would have been given to Jesus at the cross to the gall wine that we think of. And so she sits by and he gives her until she's satisfied and has some left over. So we have Boaz, a man of Bethlehem, who is giving her bread and wine, who then provides for her and she eats until satisfied. It overflows and she even has some left over. I, I cannot help but think of many of the acts of Jesus. yeah, yeah the the John six comes to mind right
1: away, right where where Jesus feeds the five thousand and after feeding the five thousand, there's a Jesus tries to to go away for a little bit, but the crowds follow him, and when the the crowds follow him, they having their fill, having been satisfied. The next day, Jesus opens his mouth and he begins to teach him in what's known as the Bread of Life discourse. And in that Bread of Life discourse, Jesus reminds the people that the, the Jews, that is, that their fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But the one who eats of his flesh and drinks of his blood has eternal life. And that one, will be raised up on the last day. The stunning thing there, of course, in John 6, is that after seeing the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000, when people hear the words of Jesus, they all leave him. They abandon right. him. They want nothing to do with him. And that's when Peter, or Jesus turns to the disciples and says, well, what about you guys? What do you want to do? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So yeah. Jesus gives provision in speaking specifically about John six, Jesus gives provision, he gives the provision of bread, but he he's going to attach that to some teaching, right? And he's pointing us to an even greater reality that he is the bread of life and that we are to feast on him. And when we feast on him because of who he is, we're one with him. And that means we have life
0: forever. Ruth brings home all of that stuff that Boaz in some ways secretly gave to her, although certainly she knows that, you know, she well, some of it was already kind of processed. So certainly she knows that this is a gift, but she brings it home and and Naomi is just floored and then I thought it was kind of funny because we just talked about how when we give the Aaronic benediction, we don't we don't say may. And then yeah. she says, may he be blessed by Yahweh. Of course, this is a different thing. She's not pronouncing a bless, bless on him. She's just saying, you know, I hope the Lord blesses him. She is hoping that because of all the good things he's done for her. And then Naomi says to her something that is a little strange and I think hard to understand if we don't know a little bit about. Well, Levitical law and, and Hebrew custom, she says the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Mm-hmm. That's strange language. I mean, we think of redeemer as Jesus, but I don't know. What, what does this mean? Right. Good question. So we're going
1: to try to unpack this for a, a while here. So the, the root word there in Hebrew, just a little Hebrew lesson here, is the word goel, and so if you hear me say Goel, you can think Redeemer. Now, I, I want to, to start by saying when we think of the term Goel, we need to understand both the sociological thrust of it and the theological thrust. Though they're not, uh, there, there's a distinction to be made there, but they're they are quite closely related. So if we want to understand, best understand what a goel is and what he does, and then what redemption means, the place to start is Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus chapter 25, we have the year of uh, Jubilee. So there were these mini Sabbath years. I think typically when we think of the Sabbath, we often just think of that that one day a week that the Lord set apart the seventh day of creation. But there are all sorts of Sabbaths that the people of Israel are to follow. And and one of them, this, or at least a few of them, I guess, would be that every seven years, there's this mini year of Jubilee. But then when you get to the seven times seventh year, there's the major Jubilee that's taking place. And what what happens on that year of Jubilee is this. If you have lost an inheritance in the the previous years, what you lost is restored to you. If, If you were in debt... You're no longer in debt. The debt is paid for. The debt is erased. If you became a slave, some kind of like indentured servant to someone else, you are no longer a slave, but you are free. This whole act of redemption of property indicates something of restoration to us. So when we think of the word redeem, when we think of the word redeemer, um, one of the biblical ways that we're to think about that is a redeemer is a restorer. That is, the restorer or the redeemer is putting things back into place. He's putting things back into order. He's reordering all things. The goel has a number of well, the next of kin has responsibilities when it comes to the, the family. So the, the, the next of kin, and, and this would be the case for the next of kin to Ruth, is to if someone is murdered, he's to avenge the murder of his kins person, he is to in, um, main, excuse me maintain the, the family's ownership of what has been given to them. And and this ties into the whole concept of the leveret marriage, which in essence means if you have if if your husband dies, it's supposed to be the brother-in-law that takes you to be your own and and fulfills the duties of his brother. The 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 next of kin is to secure a kinsperson's release from debt. That's tied to Leviticus 25, and, and is also to redeem the person or the the dependents of a kinsman who are in debt. And they do all of these things with, yeah, uh, we could say interest-free loans. They maintain their own oh, workforce and then they release those who are in bondage. All right. And so the the sociological role of the go is not to function in an individualistic mindset but to think familially in other words it's not the, the basic unit of society by god's design is not the individual but it's family or familial solidarity it's it's that solidarity that that keeps intact or keeps it, it, the integrity of the distinct male and female roles that God has given to his people to the the roles of parent and child and and fits in really nicely with what we talked about previously pastor boo regarding love that love is something that's grown into and right. that sometimes if you're going if, if you want <laughs> if you want to love right? If you want to show love to another, don't try and make your emotions right first. Do the right thing and and your heart just might follow, <laughs> right? Um, so in, as we think a little bit more about the goel and how this, how this plays out theologically then, right? We got the sociological picture, at least some sense of the sociological picture, but theologically, how does this take shape then in the, the rest of the scriptures? Well, we have in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we are told just to give us a, a, I'm going to back up to verse 3 actually, so we get a full sentence here. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, the inheritance that our, our father Adam forfeited in the Garden of Eden, that's precisely the inheritance that Jesus himself has come to restore to us. When it comes to debt, we can turn to Colossians 2, verse 13 and verse 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what has Jesus done with the debt of our sin? He has nailed it to the cross. But more than that, it's not just that Jesus has erased the debt, right? It's that Jesus has taken all of his good works, all of his, all of his goodness, that is, all of his righteousness, and he's, he's transferred it to your bank account. And he says, this counts for you. And then when it comes to slavery and freedom, Jesus says in John 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so we are set free from sin, death, and the devil by the son. And no longer then are we slaves to sin, but instead we become slaves to righteousness and, and receive our inheritance as people in the family of God. The one other thing, well, there's a few other things that come to mind, but regarding this whole goel deal, but I, I have a funeral that I'll be preaching at tomorrow. And I, I'm reminded of the words in Job chapter 19, where Job makes that great confession. I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last, right? I will see him in my, well, I know that my Restorer lives. And so I, I will have the great joy tomorrow as I'm preaching to say that the Restorer, Jesus lives. And what that means for us who are here grieving, not as those do who have no hope, but grieving as those who have hope. What that means for us is that this man that we are laying into the ground, he will be restored to life at the last. Jesus is coming again to reorder all things, to put all things back into place. So we we get all of that
0: from just one word in the book of Ruth. It really is amazing. I think when you consider everything that Christ has done for us, but you consider it in the context of his work throughout history, including perhaps these books that you don't quite know what they're trying to teach us, like Ruth, you, have, you come away with a deeper appreciation for exactly what, not only what God has done through Christ, but everything he was setting up to do to save us from our sins. Well, brother, we're at the end of our program today, and I really appreciate you joining us. I know that we could talk a lot about all of this, but I'd like to thank you, my guest, the Reverend James Stefanik, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marshall, Minnesota. Brother, thanks for being on the show. I look forward to when we can have you on again.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And dear Saints at Home, tune in tomorrow. We're going to turn the page in Ruth to chapter three, and then we'll be in chapter four on Wednesday, meaning... Well, Thursday, brand new topic. So I look forward to that. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.